0: Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. In 1917, Russia erupted in revolution and chaos. In February of that year, while bogged down in the trenches of the Great War, Russian army officers and their troops mutinied, causing Tsar Nicholas II to abdicate his throne. Several months later, the October Revolution resulted in civil war, pitting the communist Bolshevik Red Army against the anti-communist White Army. And that wasn't in all.
1: In the middle of this, Ukraine is fighting for its independence, as is Poland.
0: This is Harriet Murav, a professor of Slavic language and literatures at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She says that the levels of lawlessness and violence in the region were made more extreme by the rise of local warlords and roving militias. Conditions of extreme poverty and the lingering presence of German troops made the situation even worse. Everyone was caught up in the chaos, including Jews who were especially vulnerable.
1: If you are a Jew, you are much more likely to lose your life or your business or your property, your home. It's a kind of overall force field.
0: At its worst, that force field took the shape of pogroms, like the one that happened when Ukrainian authorities sent a warlord to establish order in the remote town of Ovridge.
1: And instead of establishing order and some kind of law, he terrorized the Jewish population, demanded huge monetary payouts, called the townworthies to the train station and ordered his men to shoot at them.
0: When the Jews fled to the nearby town of Slovetskno, the local priest incited peasants to attack the Jews, who he accused of being Bolsheviks and Christ-killers. 150 Jews were murdered over the next few days. Jews responded to pogroms in various ways. Wealthy Jews in the West created aid organizations. Many Eastern European Jews left their shtetls for larger cities. Some mounted armed resistance. And, Murav says, Yiddish writers responded to anti-Jewish violence with groundbreaking works of literature. In studying this literature, Murav has gained new insights through the conceptual lens of abandonment, a theoretical way of thinking about populations who've been deemed unworthy of protection and care.
1: And they languish in prisons, refugee camps, no government cares, offers them care.
0: In other words, they've been abandoned. Analyzing a novel by the Yiddish writer Itzik Kipnis called Months and Days, published in 1926, Morav was struck by the author's use of the Hebrew word hefker.
1: This sentence in this story was when this shtetl was invaded by this insurgent group, The, the narrator writes, we were like masterless creatures, homeless. So masterless or abandoned hefker creatures.
0: And she realized that the concept of Hefker was nearly identical to the idea of abandonment.
1: It's the same idea. The Jewish population suddenly realizes that no one cares whether they live or die, that their up for grabs, that they've been disavowed as human beings, not only by governments, but by surrounding non-Jewish populations.
0: But at the same time, Hefker became a way for Yiddish writers of the 19-teens and 20s to abandon the religious, social, and artistic constraints of the past and to chart a new path forward.
1: So it became a kind of A password for new, newly self-described free, experimental, innovative Jewish literature and art. In
0: both its destructive and creative sense, Hefker animated a wide range of Yiddish poetry and prose written in response to anti-Jewish violence during the late teens and early 20s. Leib Kvitko's 1919, a volume of poetry written about a pogrom he experienced in the city of Uman in Ukraine, uses modern poetic techniques to describe the violence and chaos, Murav says, as literally mind-blowing.
1: I mean, mind-blowing, I don't use just carelessly, because in, in a sense, that's what he's really writing about. He's writing about how everything changed and time changed. The air was different. The air was bloody, he writes.
0: The poems don't describe violence literally, Murav says. Instead, they conjure grotesque images to evoke a sense of uneasiness and dread.
1: He has a poem, for example, that seems to start out very matter-of-factly. It's called, Look, I'm Blinking. And the opening kind of gambit of the poem is, look, I'm blinking. My neighbor says, I'm dead. Look, I'm blinking, right? And the neighbor doesn't believe him.
0: The poem then shifts to a surreal nightmare where the narrator is terrified that lizards are invading his house.
1: And the poem repeats this kind of terrifying rustling noise that a lizard would make if it was scrambling, scrabbling about. And so the the whole poem turns into a kind of grotesque, bizarre, terrifying scene, not explicitly about being murdered or injured or assaulted, but about the experience of terror.
0: Similarly, the half-Jewish writer Viktor Shklovsky wrote a memoir of his experience during and after the Bolshevik Revolution.
1: And everywhere he goes, he describes the kind of unbridled violence That has entered everyday life.
0: But like Fitko, Shklovsky doesn't depict the violence in a straightforward way. Instead, he uses hyperbole and other techniques to render grotesque even people who are trying to do good.
1: The hero of his book is an American actually named Dr. Shedd. This is a real person who was in northern Iran at this time, and he drove around his horse and buggy, and he picked up children whose parents had abandoned them because they were fleeing the next onslaught of violence.
0: But Shklovsky renders him as a sort of madman with wild eyes and wild hair.
1: So the strangeness and grotesqueness of the violence seem to make the whole world strange and grotesque. And, And Shklovsky is trying to bring things back into balance and say... This is not, this is not normal. You you can't leave babies dead in the street.
0: It's Hikipnis, whose novel Months and Days we mentioned earlier, also channeled the spirit of Hefker to convey the sense of abandonment and confusion wrought by pogrom violence. When the story begins, the narrator is happily enjoying his honeymoon, but then the pogrom strikes and chaos ensues.
1: He describes himself and other Jews fleeing the violence as these ownerless or masterless hefker creatures. They didn't know where to go. I mean, that was the first problem, right? You hear shooting. Well, where do you run? Do you run into the fields? Do you, run, do you try to run out of the town? Do you, where, where do you go? How do you know what to do?
0: Although the account is fictional, Kipnis uses real names and addresses, which was very unusual for Russian and Yiddish literature of the time. And rather than describe violent acts directly, he focuses on the people they affect.
1: So someone he knows um, loses her husband, the husband is murdered, and the wife goes mad and starts wandering around the town singing a kind of dirge, sort of accusing everyone of, you all knew my husband, David Frank, the furrier, where is he? What have they done with him? And he describes his own uneasiness, his inability to deal with this woman. He he avoids her.
0: The novel ends with a description of an aid station set up to care for orphaned Jewish and Christian children.
1: And he says, it was strange to see Jewish orphans and the orphans of the Christians, in other words, the ones they had shot, eating together at these feeding stations very strange. So the incredible ambivalence of those emotions, the mixture of and his own very explicit desire for revenge, and then looking at the consequences of the violence on, on the faces of the children who were just, as he describes them, just hungry. They just, they just wanted to eat.
0: In her research, Morav tries to demonstrate the power of Yiddish literary responses to anti-Semitic violence by showing how Kipnis, Shklovsky, Kvitko, and many other writers were not merely spilling their shock and fear onto the page.
1: They were thinking. They were trying to understand what was happening to them. And they understood that they had become an abandoned population. And so if we want to understand violence more broadly today, ethnic violence, other other kinds of violence. It's good to pay attention to literary work that also thinks about what's happening conceptually.
0: That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Jean and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. You can find the Frankly Judaic podcast anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And we hope you'll leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.